Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time, it's episode 81, and we're going to talk about, is it time for a new van already? Uh, turns out it is. We're also going to talk about auto-eject shore power ports, which is a cool thing. We're going to review coffee bags, I'll explain, talk about a resource that gives you recipes for no cooking, which is great in the summer, and a tale from the road involving the fact that I am on the road right now. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks very much for listening. This episode probably sounds different because I'm recording it from a hotel room in Texarkana, Arkansas, a place that I did not anticipate being, oh, just a couple of days ago. I will explain why I'm here in the Tales from the Road section, because I am in the middle of a tale right now. But before we get there, we need to talk about something that kind of sets up this tale. And that is, is it time for a new van? And the answer to that is almost always yes, so long as you've already got a van. Let me explain. If you're new to van life, this may come as a surprise. But if you've been doing van life for a while, you've already noticed this pattern. And that is, people don't actually keep their vans very long. For example, since I started paying a lot of attention to van life when I started this podcast, nearly every single YouTube channel I follow has had their creators get a new van, or a new vehicle, or in one case, a house. Let's just take a look at some of the examples. Combi Life built a new Volkswagen camper. Foresty Forest got rid of his Uplander and got a four-wheel drive Chevy van. Nate from Element Van Life got rid of his NV200 and now is in a Japanese Toyota Hiace that he imported. And even Bob Wells, who had his Chevy Express and said that would be the last van he'd ever buy in his life, has recently gotten an ambulance of all things. So what's going on? Why is this happening? Well, I have a theory about it and I'm going to share it with you and you can call me crazy, but it has to do with minimalism, believe it or not. Now, minimalism is becoming a complicated topic because people treat it differently. I did an episode uh, many many, many episodes ago now about minimalism and the different kinds and how people do it differently. But the basic concept is that you're trying to get through life with less stuff. That's the basic idea. But there are many different ways to do it, and there are many different reasons for trying to do it. On the one hand, you've got folks who want to live their lives as simply as possible, and they want to do it with as few things as possible. That would be the perhaps most pure form of minimalism. But then there's the other group, and I think a lot of van lifers fall into this group. They're not so interested in doing without. They're interested in optimizing what they have. They're the folks you might hear say that everything in the van has to have two purposes, or something like that. That's not really a minimalist thought. That is an optimizer's thought. So perhaps these folks could be called optimizers, although that would be a subclass of minimalist because an optimizer would have, say, a multi-tool instead of a separate tool for each thing because that optimizes the amount of space in the van and the number of tools they have. A minimalist would probably try to do without the tools, if that makes any sense. But okay, we could dig into this too deep and let's not do that. So 
We know that a lot of van life people are like this. This seems to be a commonality among van life people. So they're in their vans and they're either building their own van or they purchased a van that was already built. And they are optimizing. They're figuring out the best ways to fold their clothes to fit them in the drawer. They're figuring out the best foods to buy for van life. How to maximize cooking potential, whether it be gas or electric. What's the best way to heat the van? All this stuff, they're constantly thinking. And then eventually what happens is they come up against a hard limit due to the constraints of their van. Now that might be that, hmm, I really like this van, but it's not four-wheel drive and I can't go off-road. Hmm, what can I do about that? Or it might be, boy, this minivan is great, but I really wish I could stand up. Or it might be, boy, this thing is perfect, but I've got no place to put my boat. Something like that. And once that thought gets into somebody's head, and there's no outlet for that thought, it can only go to one place, and that place is a new van. And if you look at all the examples I gave you, they're all people who actually got very different vehicles that solved a problem that they came up against that they couldn't solve with their current van. Forresty Forrest wanted four-wheel drive and more space. That's what he got. Bob Wells, I don't know exactly what he wanted, but he got it. He got a four-wheel drive ambulance that has hard walls, and he covered the walls instantly with shower curtains, which I think is odd, but that's what he wanted, and he did it. And it's actually a very different vehicle than his previous van, which is pretty much the same van that Forestry Forest just got, except for the four-wheel drive part. Combi Life, they had a Volkswagen bus with a normal roof. They got a, a Volkswagen bus with a a roof that they could stand in. That was what they would want. And they totally customize the engine and have a unique vehicle. Nate from Element Van Life needed more space. So he and his girlfriend both sold their vans and bought a bigger van that they could live in together. You see the point here. They all hit that hard limit that could only be overcome with vans. Now, I relate to this rather extremely. Let me give you a little bit of my journey here, and that's what I call this. This is the van life journey, and you can kind of see how that works. My very first motorhome was a 1977 Toyota Chinook. These things were everywhere, and they were a, a little Toyota pickup truck with a fiberglass shell built into the back with a pop-top roof. Great little things, and I loved this thing. Drove it all over the place, went camping all the time, but I couldn't take a shower in it. It had a hand pump for water and no gray tank and no black tank, and I found that limiting. So I bought another Toyota, this time a Mini Cruiser. I think it was an 83 Mini Cruiser. Very small. It was only 17 feet long, but it had two beds. I didn't have to set up a bed. One of the beds was over the cab and that was permanently set up and it had a wet bath with a shower and hot water and it was a completely self-contained, if rather small for that vehicle. But then I needed something more than a van, which was money and flexibility. I was at this time of my life where I was moving a lot and trying to establish myself somewhere and so I sold that and then didn't have anything for years. And then finally everything changed and I had resources and I was like, well, I have resources now, what should I do? And I started over again in completely a different direction. 
I got a 1989 Wanderlodge SP36 Silver Edition. And for those who don't know, this is basically a bus. This thing weighed 33,000 pounds. It was the highest quality thing I've ever owned. And it had everything. For a vehicle from the 80s, it had everything. I could do laundry as I drove down the road. I even put a plasma TV in it. And at that time, which was about the year 2000, that was an extreme luxury. It had a built-in blender. It had an ice machine. It had aqua hot heat and water. So there was always hot water because it heated off the engine. I mean, this thing was absolutely amazing. But I ran into another hard limit, and that was that it couldn't fit to my new house in Vermont, where there were small bridges and a 33,000 pound vehicle literally could not get to my house. So I sold that and well, I thought, well, that was the end of that. Yeah, well, not so much. And uh, <laughs> then I bought a smart car. How does this lead into the van life journey? Well, we thought the smart car would be cute towing a little camper with it. And so I camped in this little tiny timeout trailer with the smart car, which I recently sold. But the problem with that is, even though it had lots of space, it took a long time to set up. So if you were driving somewhere and just wanted to stay for the night, that 15 minutes you had to spend putting it up and that 15 minutes you had to spend taking it down, that was actually a burden. So I thought, wouldn't it be nice to have a van? And I could just pull over and... Boom. Here we are. I got the NV200, I built it out, started the podcast, and voila, here we are. But guess what? I'm starting to hit limits again. My NV200, while I think it's a wonderful vehicle, and I'm very happy with my build, I, I could praise the NV200 for quite a long time, I just need a little bit more space. Just a little bit more it's not that I care that I can't stand up in it. That's not the problem. I just need enough space to put in even a suitcase. Even a suitcase worth of space would help a lot. I want to go back to doing what I was doing before, which is these College of Curiosity tables. If you know what a Cabinet of Curiosities is, I do tables of curiosities, and it's a big table laid out with all these amazing objects from all over the world, and I ask people to point at one, and then I start them on a journey through all the objects, how they relate to each other, some of them are mystery objects, you have to guess what they are, others are things that people have never heard of, or they have some interesting bit of history, or whatever. I like doing that, I want to keep doing that, and it would be very difficult for me to do that with the MV200, because the cases I use to store the stuff... I basically have no place to put them inside the van, and I don't really want to put them outside the van. So, what does that mean? That means, as you've heard me say a few times here, I'm looking for a new van. Stay tuned for part two of this story. Tech Talk. I encountered something recently uh, that I kind of knew about, but I didn't actually know how it worked, and it's called the auto-eject shore power port. It does exactly what it sounds like. I Now that I know how it works, I can talk about it intelligently. So folks who are fortunate enough to have a garage to park their vans in often like to have them plugged in. I mean, after all, if you plug in your van, it can keep your battery topped up or keep your fridge running or whatever else you need. Maybe your security system going, whatever. 
And, uh, you know, you're not using up your battery or anything if it's plugged in. It's nice and easy. So, But the danger is that you may hop in your van and drive off and forget to unplug it. And then you could be in a little bit of a hazardous situation. I mean, most likely you would just break something. But you don't want to do that. So what can you do to prevent yourself from doing that? Well, there are obvious things you can do. I mean, I've heard many people say that they they tie a ribbon on the steering wheel or they put the windshield wipers up so they don't hit the glass. And then when they get in the car, they see the windshield wipers and they're like, oh, I need to unplug the shore power. There are lots of little things you can do to remind yourself. But for the emergency vehicle industry, like fire engines and ambulances and things like that, they don't actually want to even take that risk. So they use what's called an auto-eject port. And this thing literally will shoot the plug out of the side of the van far enough away that you can drive off and not even think about it. But the trick is what triggers it. Nobody has to press a button. Nobody has to remember anything. As soon as you turn the key and turn the van on, it sends power to this auto-eject port and that shoots the plug out. Boom, it's gone. It's pretty hilarious, and I think it's actually a really fun idea. And unfortunately, they're kind of expensive. While a shore power port for a normal, say, 15-amp port in the U.S., 110 volts, 15 amps, is about 25 bucks. An auto-eject port is about 250 bucks. And you've got an extra step where you have to wire it to a ignition-hot wire, which isn't that big of a deal, but you still have to do it. But this could be a good solution for those of you who have this problem of maybe driving away without plugs. And while that may seem like, how could anybody forget that to some of you, I have driven away with a gas pump nozzle in my car and ripped the hose off of a gas pump. So, yeah, I know such things happen. <laughs> Let's just say that. I'll have a link in the show notes. There, there's not something you can get on Amazon. It's kind of a specialty thing, but I think for some folks, it's a really, really good solution. Product review. This is a bit odd, but I've had these things for years, and I think they have some applications in van life. And I, I did mention these in the Facebook group, so those of you in the Facebook group, this will sound familiar, but I can talk about it more here. These are coffee bags. Now, they're not coffee bags like ground coffee comes in or that you use to make coffee. No, these are the big sacks that coffee beans are shipped to roasters in. That would be green coffee beans. These things don't actually smell like coffee because they haven't, the beans hadn't, haven't been roasted yet when they're in these bags. But the bags are cool. They're very big. They're big enough to do a potato sack race in. I mean, they're pretty similar to potato sacks actually, although I think they're heavier duty. They also have cool designs because they will feature the logo of whoever grew the coffee and that's all over the world. So if you buy a set of these bags, you'll get logos from Brazil and Africa, maybe Hawaii. It depends on what set of bags you get. And in my experience with the ones I bought, you and I've actually bought two of these, you just get a pack of bags. You don't get to pick. If you buy them one at a time, you might be able to pick them. But what does this have to do with vans? Why would you want this in your van? Well, they're fabric. 
you can use them for whatever you use fabric for in the van. You can cover your walls with them. You can cover your seats with them. You can make furniture out of them. You can even use them to be the front of your drawers, which I've seen somebody do. They kind of made a frame on the front of their drawers and then cut out the logo of the coffee bags and stuck it in there and then put a pull on it. It looked really nice. So if you're into that organic kind of vibe or even if you like a tiki vibe in your van, these coffee bags can be super useful. And here's the good news. They're about three bucks a piece if you buy them in bulk. I got 10 for 30 bucks twice on Amazon. I'll have to check to see if that deal's still available. If you buy them one at a time, they're like 15 bucks a piece. So hey, if you want to do a little entrepreneurial thing, you could buy a set and sell them for 12 bucks a piece and undercut the competition. I'll have links in the show notes as much as I can. I actually got mine on Amazon a few years ago and I used them to decorate a tiki bar and it worked out really well. And I'm actually using them in my new condo as a decoration and a cat bed. For some reason, the cats love these things. Mm. Resource recommendation. No cook recipes. So it's summer. It's hot, especially out west. I mean, you poor folks out there, you head to Oregon in the summer thinking it's going to be cool. And yeah, not so much this year. I am so sorry you were having to put up with that, especially with the Canadian border closed, so you can't just head north to get out of it. In such cases, you probably don't want to cook in your van so much. You don't want to add heat to your van. And even, you know, even cooking outside is kind of not pleasant in these circumstances. So don't cook. Don't cook. That's right. There are plenty, plenty of recipes out there where you don't have to cook. And they're not all vegetarian, vegan, nuts and twigs and branches kind of recipes. There's everything on there. And I'm going to give you a link to just one of many, many, many of the different sites that have these recipes. This one has 50 of them, so I thought it was a good one to share. It's called Taste of Home. And they have an article that I will link to. It's called 50 No-Cook Meals That'll Keep the Kitchen Cool. And there are things like salad in a jar and smoked salmon egg salad on croissant, red, white, and blue summer salad. Now, of course, there's lots of salads, but that's okay. Tomato club sandwiches, easy seafood salad, chicken cucumber pitas, chicken nectarine and avocado salad, spicy beef teriyaki. I mean, when you're dealing with cold foods, you kind of need to have something as a base. And so salad is a, is a pretty obvious one. But they've got recipes on here that maybe aren't so obvious, such as watermelon shrimp salad. Can't say I've ever tried that. Or maybe dilly chickpea salad sandwiches for a little bit of a different texture experience. They even have things like ham and potato salad sandwiches. And again, this is the site is goes both ways. You know, they, they have gazpacho. They have... Meat lovers, bread salad, there's all kinds of things on here. So I just present this as mostly an idea. I'm not really recommending the site or any of these recipes because I've never tried them. But as a concept, I think it's definitely something that everyone should have in their repertoire of cooking a few things that don't need any cooking, yet are still good, still something you would look forward to. So again, link in the show notes, but it's tasteofhome.com, and you can search for... 50 no-cook meals that'll keep the kitchen cool, and the author is Molly Jasinski. Tales from the Road. Okay, folks, buckle up for this one. I am about to present the most extreme case of do as I say and not as I do. Oh, boy. 
Um, over over the couple of years I've been doing this podcast, I have made some recommendations based on my personal opinions and experience, and I don't typically make hard recommendations. I'm not saying you must do this. I'm saying that if you want to do this, you should consider these problems and things. That's That's kind of my approach, and I don't think that's a bad way to be. But I recently did something that goes against, like, seven things I said. And I have to own up to it. Number one, I said that if you're in the U.S., it makes more sense to get a gasoline engine than a diesel engine unless you're towing. Okay, remember that? Number two, I said that if you're looking to buy a van, even though the sprinters are the vans you see all the time, they're so overhyped and Mercedes repairs are so expensive that they may not be the best van and you should consider all the others. Especially the newer sprinters that have the Bluetex system and the DEF and all the extra pollution control stuff, which is great for the environment, but super complicates the engine. Those are not the best. I did say that. Remember that I also said that ambulances look like they would be great because, hey, look at this thing. It's already built out, and it's built out with real quality, and you just buy it, and you're ready to go. Except that it's not that simple because these vehicles, even though they may have 150,000 miles, have been idling somewhere for 10 years, which is the equivalent of maybe 300,000 miles. The stuff that's in there is high quality, but it's extremely hard to modify, and the electrical stuff in an ambulance is insane. It is incredibly complex. Almost everybody who gets an ambulance opens a door and finds 800,000 miles of wires and doesn't know what to do with it. And I've also said that having a roof that you can stand up in is not the most important thing. Well, I'm sorry. I, I've actually never said that. I've said that it may not be. And I've said that I don't mind not being able to stand up in my van, which is true. That isn't something I really mind. And there are drawbacks to having tall roofs, such as that you have just given up the chance to go through a drive through or most car washes, or nearly all parking garages. Those are gone. They are off-limits to you now. Yeah, well, about all those things, uh, I just bought a diesel sprinter ambulance with a high roof um, that has the DEF system. Yeah. So, um, why did I do that? <laughs> Is it that I changed my opinion? Was I wrong? Well, maybe I'm wrong. It's all just opinion. I could be wrong, but no. Um, I'm going to blame Bob Wells for this one. If you follow Bob Wells and his Cheap RV Living channel, and I've mentioned it in this podcast, he recently bought an ambulance to move into. And I had long given up on the idea of an ambulance. I mean, I, I've always liked the idea, but it just, because of all the reasons I just gave, it just wasn't practical. And then I saw Bob and his ambulance, and I said, well, hmm. If Bob is doing this, maybe I can do it. And I looked out from the window of the condo I live in at the tiny parking lot. I mean, the parking lot's not tiny, but the spaces are. And I thought, well, there's just really no place to put an ambulance here. So even if I got one, I don't know what I would do. And then it dawned on me, I don't have to keep the ambulance at the condo. I could keep it somewhere else. And because my wife has a little tiny car... I could also get another little tiny car and we could both park 
in the same space with our little tiny cars, which we have actually done before. And this whole plan formed. I was going to get a Type 1 or a Type 3 ambulance. Those are truck front and large van front ambulances, basically like box trucks, but ambulances. And they have all the storage in the world, and I was going to put my boat in there, and all the College of Curiosity stuff, and all my, all my camping furniture, and it was going to be great and everything. And I started looking for them, and many of them are quite affordable, but they're old. And then I started to see all the downsides to this, different downsides than I had thought before. One thing I noticed is that the newer, lower mileage ones had much more complicated wiring because to eliminate the miles and miles of wiring, a lot of newer ambulances actually have a computerized system where you're not sending electricity, you're sending data. So there's a computer terminal in the back and a computer terminal in the front. And while that's great if you're an ambulance, if you're going to turn it into a camper, you can't use any of that typically because it's it's ambulance stuff and it's designed to be used while the vehicle is running which is something that you don't want when you're camping so you basically have to rip all that out and that's a big pain in the butt and then i thought about gas mileage when you are looking to buy an ambulance which engine it has in it is a very big deal there's the Chevy Duramax, there are the Ford Power Strokes, there's Cummins, there's a whole bunch of them, and they all have their pros and cons. But most of the ambulances available now uh, tend to be those, these Power Strokes that Ford had, their 6.0 liter Power Stroke that was, well, it was a problematic engine, and I won't go into all the problems with it, but if you talk to diesel folks and mention that engine, they'll tell you. And they tell you to go to an older model and get the 7.3 liter diesel. The problem with the 7.3 liter diesel, even though it's a very strong and very reliable engine, is that it gets like 7 miles a gallon. So I started doing the math and figuring how what a pain it was going to be to not have my camping vehicle parked near me, and how if I took a trip across the country, my fuel costs were going to triple or quadruple. And then I said, well, what about a Type 2? Now, a Type 2 ambulance is a van. It's a van without any box on it. You can, it's like a Class B RV. Class B is to RVs as Type 2 is to ambulances. Now, the problem with Type 2s is they don't have the storage on the outside. I mean, that's one of the big appeals to having an ambulance as a camper. You have all these lockers on the outside, and they're pretty fancy. They all light up, they all have locks with keys, and if any of them are left open, a light goes on in the dashboard or somewhere in the cab. I mean, they're very cool, and some of them are super tall. You can put skis in them. Others are just big and bulky and would be great for batteries or water tanks. I mean, that is a huge appeal to having an ambulance. But you don't get any of that with a Type 2. And in fact, if you look at the ambulance camper community or the ambulance van life community, however you want to look at it, you see very, very few Type 2s. And most of the ones you see, they strip out the interiors entirely and basically just have a van. And the problem with that is that they have a van now that has been used in severe duty and has none of the advantages of an ambulance at that point. And those advantages are you get furniture. You get really high-quality cabinets built into the van. And to my way of thinking, 
if you're going to get an ambulance, you should really try to use those cabinets. Not everybody agrees with me on that, but that's such a big advantage to them that I think you really should try to do that. You also get lights. Now, I'm not talking about the flashy blue police lights, and yeah, you get a siren and all that. Sometimes they take them out, sometimes they don't. That's not the lights I'm talking about. There are things called scene lights, and basically you can light up the entire world all around your ambulance, and those lights they leave. And that's just a nice thing. It's not something you need necessarily, but that's something you will use. So after all this, why, why did I buy a 2011 Sprinter 2500 high top Miller coach build ambulance? from a hospital in Texas. Because for my specific situation and my specific desires, I think it might actually be the perfect vehicle. And it also scratches that itch of I've always wanted an ambulance because uh, even though they're not practical and have all kinds of problems, that doesn't mean I don't want them. Sometimes human relationships are like this too. Let's not get into that. So yeah, <laughs> I am now the owner of a 2011 Sprinter that needs to be converted. Um, it runs great, has 128,000 miles on it, although it'll have closer to 130 by the time I get to Chicago, and I think it's going to be a great vehicle. And yes, that means Pergurus will be on the market probably in the next two weeks. In fact, I've already had somebody ask if they could buy it. I haven't figured out pricing, and I, there's a bunch of stuff I need to fix in it because uh, the, another truism, and this could be a whole other episode, is if you own a van, you're never done fixing stuff. That's true for houses and RVs as well. So I have some things to fix. But yes, Pergurus will be going on the market. I don't have space for two vans. In a perfect world, I would keep them both because they do different things perfectly. I'm really going to miss how easy it is to drive the NV200 and just park it anywhere I want. I am really going to miss that. I'm also going to miss the 23 miles a gallon too, although the Sprinter apparently will do much, much better than uh, one of the older 7.3 liters uh, diesels, for example. Folks, what can I tell you? This is part of my van life journey. I hit that wall where I could not fit any more stuff that I wanted to. I needed something bigger. And this giant convoluted thought process landed me here. So now, instead of hearing me talk about NV200s too much, you'll hear me talk about ambulances too much. But I, I hope that that will actually be kind of fun. Well, folks, thank you for listening to this yet another odd episode because I'm recording someplace that I don't have the equipment. I'm actually recording this on a DJI Pocket 2 camera, if you can believe that. So there's video, but I probably won't ever let you see it. Music, as always, is by Simon Wegg. And until next time, remember, not all who wander are lost, but some certainly are. <laughs>